Hi there, I'm Nicolette Reed, and this is EIB Export News. Hi there, welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking all about ITAR. We're going to be talking about ITAR open general licenses, and we're also going to be talking about ITAR exemptions, like the Canadian exemption. But now there's two more countries at play. So stick around to see what you can learn. Okay, so let's begin with the general best practices for ITAR compliance. So the first step to being ITAR compliant is proper annual registration and ITAR Part 121 category identification. So ITAR Part 121 is just the section of the ITAR where the USML lives. That's the United States Munitions List. So that is where you can find all of the ITAR categories, and if you make a military item, you can find your classification for it there in ITAR Part 121. The next best practice, of course, is control of technology accessed by foreign nationals. So in general, in the United States, we have a policy to not discriminate against anybody based on their nationality. However, when it comes to protecting all of our national security, that goes hand in hand with protecting our military items or our defense items, even our lower level 600 series defense items. So we really want to control who has access to those items. And if a foreign national is going to handle any of those items, then you're going to need a license for them to do so. So foreign national access controls really come into play on the ITAR side. So foreign national access controls are things like how you identify, monitor, and track your visitors, uh, employees if they're foreign nationals. Do you have licenses for them to discuss certain things? And then the exchange of tech data, which is written data about controlled items. So if you're going to exchange tech data with a foreign national, you need to have a license in place to do so, but you also need to keep detailed records of what data was shared, the date it was shared, and who you shared that stuff with. Another best practice is proper licensing of ITAR products and technology. That's, of course, required to all foreign destinations with limited exemptions to Canada. And now we have some other countries at play here. We have open general licenses, one and two classifications for Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So we already had limited exemptions to Canada, but now there is this additional OGL 1 and 2 license exemption, which Canada does qualify for, but now so does Australia and the United Kingdom. Other best practices are proper export documentation for the movement of goods. Uh, Regardless of what class we are teaching at EIB, I always tell people the documentation piece is so critical because If you're doing your compliance right, but you're doing your export documentation wrong, then you're not really doing it all right, even though you may think you are. And furthermore, you don't have great backup evidence that you did do it right if you don't have great documentation and record keeping, which record keeping is another best practice that's here. Other uh, best practices are, of course, proper and frequent ITAR training, because if you don't stay trained on the regulation changes, how can you be compliant? And then highlighting and brightlining all of the things above that I just mentioned. 
the key piece or best practice really for any exporting company because there is a commercial version of this document as well. But you want to have a fully implemented export management compliance program or EMCP or ECP, EMS, whatever you are calling it these days. However, if you make defense products, your export management compliance program is going to be called a DTC program or Defense Trade Controls program. It is a written guide that's going to cover all the things you would normally learn during the course of an EAR or an ITAR training. And it's also going to outline all of those best practices. And it's a document that's meant to keep your company in compliance and it's also meant to be a training tool. And if you've done a good job writing this document or having a company like us assist you in writing your document and implementing your program, if you have a robust document, then chances are any compliance-related question you have, uh, many of them could be answered by just looking them up in your own document. So what are the elements that would make up a good DTC compliance manual? Well, your organization structure would be there, so like a flowchart of whom reports to whom. Your corporate commitment policy statement would be in there, which is meant to be redistributed annually as a memo to everybody at your company who deals with international sales or exports. They're supposed to receive that memo annually, and it just puts them on notice or reminder that you have an ongoing commitment to export compliance at your company because of the nature of the products that you make. Another key piece here in your DTC manual would be how you identify, receive, and track your ITAR-controlled items and related technical data to those items, how re-exports and retransfers are handled at your company, and then restricted and prohibited exports and transfers for ITAR items. Other things that would be outlined in your manual would be record-keeping, internal monitoring, training, and then of course, dun-dun-dun, violations and penalties. Once you feel good about the program you have in place at your company, it's a good idea to do a little self-auditing from time to time. Perhaps roll it into when you do your ISO practice. So how are you going to know if you need a State Department license? So you're only going to need an export license from the State Department, which is the military side of the regulations, if your product was designed or modified for military use in or with an ITAR item, and you're planning an export. Remember earlier when I talked about Part 121 of the ITAR? That's the section you want to go to to see if the product you make can be found in the USML. Uh, but please note, products or services that have been militarized may not be on this list. So those are items that started off as a commercial product but have been modified for military application. Sometimes you modify those items so much for military use that they are no longer considered commercial, in which case you would need a license from the State Department. So when you're talking about a military ITAR item, that means there is a Roman numeral category number associated with it. That is the numbering system that we use with the ITAR. Licenses are actually required 100% of the time with limited exemptions. And forever and a day, we always said the only one country exemption was Canada. Until now. Now we have this OGL pilot program that is available for Australia, Canada and the United Kingdom only. So now we're going to talk about different types of license applications for different situations and we're going to talk about licenses for ITAR items. So we used to use D-Trade to apply for uh, license applications or licenses 
through the U.S. State Department for ITAR. However, we no longer use D-Trade. It's now being called DEX, but it's essentially the same system. But you can't even get into that system and use it properly unless you've already registered your company and you already received your digital certificate of registration because you need that number in order to use DEX. So there's a couple different types of uh, license situations here. Most of the time, the license you're going to use, uh, the license form you're going to use is the DSP-5. That's used for uh, foreign national visitors, foreign national hired employees. It's also used for permanent exports and many other situations. There are licenses for temporary exports. That means eventually it's going to be returned to the U.S. You would use a license form DSP-73. If you're going to have a temporary import, then you're going to use a form DSP-61. That means eventually this item is going to be returned to the country from which it came. A lot of times uh, you can use those for demos or you may be able to use those for uh, certain repair situations if they don't qualify for the repair one-for-one -one exemption. If you're going to be sharing tech data, which again is written data about controlled items, you need to use a DSP-5 for that as well. So most of the time we're using the DSP-5 for permanent situations. However, if your item, when you looked it up in the USML, if there was a little asterisk or star next to it, that means our government considers your item, dun-dun-dun-dun, either classified or significant military equipment, commonly called SME. If you make an item like that and you saw that little star or you saw that little asterisk next to the component or product that you make, then in addition to the license, you also need to get a DSP-83 end use statement, okay? Now there are two other big beefy licensing scenarios. One of them is a manufacturing license agreement or an MLA. And the other one is a technical assistance agreement or TAA. Those are really licensing situations that you want to use when you're going to have a long-standing situation going on with a foreign entity. If you can get that license approved, it can be good for up to 10 years. The other licensing scenario that we don't really discuss too much that does exist is it's a distribution agreement and it's just very difficult to get one of those approved for an ITAR product, but it can be done. If you're interested in learning more about the big beefy licenses that last for 10 years that I just spoke about, the MLA and the TAA, feel free to reach out to us at EIB and we'll be happy to walk you through those scenarios. Okay, so what about that new OGL Open General License pilot program I mentioned earlier? So this is a new uh, license pilot program that's valid for Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. The main purposes of this new OGL pilot program are to facilitate legitimate defense trade with partners and allies while denying adversaries access to sensitive U.S. technology. It's also meant to increase operational readiness and interoperability of U.S. partners and allies. It's also meant to further the development of a modern and agile U.S. export control system. For guidance on the regulations regarding this new OGL open license pilot program, look up ITAR sections 126.9b, 120.20, 126.16d, and 126.17d, as well as 126.5b. Relevant types of transfers that are covered under this new OGL1 
include retransfers within Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. The type of defense articles that are covered by OGL1 are unclassified defense articles. The approved recipients are the Australia, Canadian, and UK governments, and also members of the Australia and UK communities and Canadian registered persons. Relevant OGL1 requirements include, but are not limited to, informing the end user of information enumerated in ITAR section 123.9b, maintaining specified records and making such records available to DDTC upon request, and utilizing the Open General License Number 1 as the license or other approval number citation. There are some general limitations and provisos to using the OGL-1 new Open General License Pilot Program. Some of those limitations and provisos include that the item must have originally been exported under a DDTC license or other approval. No defense articles originally exported via an FMS program. And there are also some other uh, limitations there. There are missile limitations, particularly related to MTCR or MT articles. Also technical data limitations, value limitations, location limitations, end use limitations. And there are always presumption of denial limitations in play. This was a very brief summary of what OGL1 includes and excludes, so please make sure to do your own homework or reach out to us for further training on these licenses and their limitations. On we go to OGL2, which is the second part of the new Open General License pilot program. This allows for types of transfers including re-exports between or among Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. The type of defense articles that are allowable under OGL2 are still unclassified defense articles. Approved recipients are Australia, Canada, and the UK governments, as well as members of the Australia and UK communities and Canadian registered persons. So what exactly is different between OGL1 and OGL2? Uh, the requirements is really what's different. You want to utilize Open General License Number 2 as the license or other approval number citation. There are some limitations and provisos for OGL2. Uh, transfer or territory re-exports must take place wholly or within or between the physical territory of Australia, Canada, or the UK. The end use includes the government of the United States when the item is coming back to the USA. Other, other requirements include the value must be under congressional notification levels, the United States is somehow included in the re-exports, the export is not allowed from the USA, technical data levels and uses are limited, certain uses require a TAA, and approved community legal entities cannot be involved, including government and certain defense companies. There's also a treaty reference system that's involved, TRS and CCGP, as well as DCN, TCNs for US, Australia, Canada, and UK only. Ultimately, OGL2 has far more requirements than OGL1, so you definitely want to go back and review those ITAR sections that I mentioned to you earlier to make sure that you don't miss any of the requirements if you are going to try and utilize either of these two new license programs.
When it comes to OGL 1 and 2, from a compliance standpoint, you want to make sure that you're going to do the following. Keep your records for five years, unless there's a TAA or an MLA involved, those records you want to keep for 10 years. Know that these records can be reviewed by the U.S. government at any time. So you want to keep a very detailed record of what was shipped or what was exchanged under OGL 1 and 2. You want to have evidence that you reviewed the CCGP or the TSR to ensure compliance. You want to have evidence of the end user statement, end use, and end user. You want to have made sure that your product is eligible and unclassified under the ITAR. You want to incorporate the elements that are required on the commercial invoice, such as your destination control statement and all the other factors. You want to make sure that your item is eligible to move, re-export, or transfer to Australia, Canada, the UK, or the US. In addition to OGL1 and OGL2, there have been several other updates to the ITAR. There are proposed overall construct changes that can be found under Section 120 for general information, the global definition specifically. The USML Section 121 has had some updating, registration under Section 122, license requirements under 123, licensing process under 124, exemptions, many changes there under 125, country policies, many changes there that are significant under 126, and then we also have violations under Section 127, administrative procedures under 128, brokering under 129, and political contributions under Section 130. If you would like training or more information regarding any of the items I have discussed or any other export compliance related matters, please go to our website at www.eib.com or give us a call at 978 256 0438. At Evolutions in Business, we've been helping people stay compliant since 1989. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. My name is Nicolette. I'm from EIB. I was your host. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next month. But until then, remember, export compliance. It's the law. We make it